a famous evangelist once said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's going to turn out all right. <laughs> and I absolutely agree with him. As Christians, one of the great promises of our faith is that in the end, all shall be well. This is especially comforting uh, for those who are going through the valleys in our lives. Anyone facing great tragedy or loss can be assured with the certainty of our faith that the, the worst thing we can experience in this life is never the last thing because God has already had the final say on suffering and death and that final say is good so that what comes next is good. The truth of our faith is one of the great comforts of our spiritual journeys. Having said that, if you, if you start with the first page of the Bible and you read everything between there and the last page of the Bible, you come across plenty of passages that are let's just say, uh, something other than comforting. Reading the Bible in, in its entirety is a spiritual discipline that I uh, would encourage everyone to do at least once in their lifetimes because it gives you an important uh, sense of the beauty and the complexity and the grace and the epic nature of the salvation history recorded in our most important book. And if you decide to do that, you won't get too far into it before you come across some difficult passages, some surprising passages, some, some head scratchers, some confusing stories, some doozies. This is the fourth and final week of our series called, I'm sorry, what? And as in we're reading along in our Bibles, everything's going great. Uh, and then we come across passages that make us wonder, what's this got to do with our, our faith? It, they kind of stop us down. And we're reading four of those kinds of passages in this series. In the first three weeks, uh, we talked about in week one a strange passage from Genesis 6 about angels marrying humans. As I said, you can't get too far into the Bible before you come across some challenging parts. And then we read a story about the prophet Elisha and a couple of bears who teach some disrespectful kids a lesson in manners. Uh, and then we read Psalm 137, which includes at the end a violent call for retribution against the children of our enemies. And every week, what we did was unpack um, those specific texts just a little bit. We talked about what we might learn from those passages. Those sermons are on the website if you missed any of them and would like to get caught up. But for me, the, the more important work that we're doing in this series is talking about how we read the Bible in our Methodist context, because being clear about how we approach Scripture is a crucial first step in making sense of it. And for me, uh, the Methodist approach to not just the Bible, but to our theology in general is healthy, and it's empowering, and it's life-giving. And of course, it starts with the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Wesley, uh, that, that's a statue that's in front of his house in London. Wesley was a, an Oxford-educated priest in the Church of England in the 18th century, a preacher's kid himself. He spent his entire life in the church, and he spent almost his entire ministry uh, seeking to revive the church in its passion for our fundamental mission. Now today, we express that mission as making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. If you are a student of the history of Methodism, you know that Wesley never intended to form a new denomination. How that happened is a story for another day. 
Instead, he wanted to reach as many people as he could with the gospel of Christ, and he wanted followers of Jesus, both uh, newcomers and experienced hands alike, to be passionate about our own faith and about the teachings and ministry of our Lord. And so he formed small groups of people who came to be known as Methodists, who would grow in their faith together, who would challenge one another and hold each other accountable, uh, who would share the gospel with their communities, yes, through their words, and equally importantly, uh, with their deeds. And that small movement, of course, would grow and evolve and spread to what we know today as the United Methodist Church. And as with any founder of a movement or a group, Wesley's ethos, his uh, theological perspective, really set the trajectory for the people called Methodists. Wesley called himself a man of one book, a student of many. The one book obviously being the Bible. Uh, But as we've been talking about over the course of these four weeks, our theology is not based solely on the Bible. Wesley, in fact, owned over a thousand books, which was a huge number in his day. He read widely. He believed that there are four sources and criteria for our theological task. As we've talked about in this series, we believe that our theology is revealed in Scripture, illumined by tradition, tested by reason, and made alive in our personal and in our communal experience. We've also talked about how uh, we believe that the Bible contains all things necessary for salvation, so we believe it's authoritative for, and that it also contains a fair amount of the humanity of its authors. We talked last week about how it is, in a sense, both human and divine, and that we have faith that uh, the Holy Spirit guides us in our reading of it. So that's what we've been, we've been talking about to this point in the series, but up to this point in the series, we've been reading Old Testament texts. And I think that uh, for us Christians, it's much easier for us to explain away difficult texts from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's authoritative. It's part of the Bible, of course. But the New Testament, uh, while while we consider it to be a continuation of the revelation of God from the Old Testament, holds a a different kind of authority for us, right? We read everything, after all, in light of the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when we read stories about um, angels marrying humans or about uh, bears attacking, (laughs) um, um, uh, it's not really that funny, but uh, anyway, bears attacking kids because Elisha told them to, you have to go back and listen to those other sermons, hear why that's a little bit funny. or this notion of attacking our enemies, violent retribution of our enemies, we can say, ah, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. So what do we do with those difficult passages of Scripture that come from the mouth of Jesus himself? Well, uh, we're going to turn to one of those passages now. This is actually one of the recommended gospel lectionary texts for later in this year. Uh, we're going to go ahead and and read it today. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Luke. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of them. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may know that an early, an early name for the Christian movement was The Way. And honestly, I, I think we lost something of the, of the true meaning of our movement when, when we stopped calling it that. Because our life of discipleship, our lifetime of trying to follow Jesus as best we can, truly is a spiritual journey. The Christian life is not this linear progression from baptism to heaven. There are ups and downs. There are mountaintop experiences and difficult valleys, sometimes valleys that lie in the shadow of death. Sometimes the walk is sunny and the way is easy, while sometimes the storms rage. Sometimes we get lost or sidetracked. Sometimes we run into roadblocks. Sometimes we take the wrong path at the fork in the road. And you know how this goes, right? We all have uh, similar versions of the same story. Our passion for faith waxes and wanes. Life can distract us. We go through periods when our priorities get mixed up. Uh, we don't make the time that we know we should for our relationship with Christ or our relationship with Christ's church. Or uh, something doesn't go our way or somebody in the church disappoints us. Or we surround ourselves with people who don't share our values when it comes to God and then we, and we drift for a while. Or we do something we regret and then we're embarrassed to come back. Or we think that we're not worthy or we wonder if we can be forgiven. I mean, you, we all know how this goes. The, the Christian life is not a linear progression from baptism to heaven. <laughs> but always, hopefully, hopefully, we're conscious of the fact that, that God is walking beside us, or at the very least, we can be reminded that God is always walking beside us. And when need be, we're aware that Jesus is calling us back to his way. Well, part of the genius of Luke's gospel is that he tells his story of Jesus as an embodiment of this metaphor of spiritual journey. Because from this point of the gospel forward, where we started reading today, chapter 9, verse 51 forward, when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, Jesus, from that point forward, is literally on the road with his disciples. The next 10 chapters of Luke, that's 10 of 24 total chapters from this point of the gospel all the way to the beginning of what we call Holy Week, is set on the road to Jerusalem. And some of the best-known stories of the Christian faith are told in these 
10 chapters on the, on the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem with his disciples. Jesus teaching his disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus blessing the children. And then there are these three beloved stories that appear only in Luke and that are essential to our understanding of the faith. The parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son. And then that story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. All of that appears in this section. Scholars refer to it as the travel log or the travel narrative, and its 10 chapters are really uh, all about what it means to follow Christ, which is to say the travel log is about the journey of discipleship, beginning with the verses in our passage this morning. And Luke does this really brilliant thing when he, when he tells us that Jesus set his face. He is alluding to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, which reads, the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Luke is saying that the nearness of God empowers us with that determination that's required for our faith journey. And then this passage, these verses end with a section that include that includes some of Jesus' most challenging words, uh, in my opinion. It's three examples of would-be disciples who, whom Jesus warns just what they're getting themselves into if they decide to follow him. So the first one enthusiastically promises to, to follow Jesus wherever he goes, and Jesus responds by telling him, uh, okay, fine, but you got to understand that the path gets rough sometimes. Even the Son of Man sometimes has nowhere to lay his head so if you're if you're really going to follow me just buckle up because it, it won't all be sunshine and unicorns to paraphrase and we aren't told by Luke whether or not this this guy decides to follow him anyway so that's that's the first one that one's easy enough and then the the second person says uh yep I want to follow you Jesus but I got to bury my my father and Jesus is less than sympathetic. He tells him to forget that and to focus on the mission of proclaiming the kingdom. And then this, this third person wants to follow Christ, volunteers to follow Christ, but he just wants to say goodbye to his loved ones first. And Jesus is, is uncharacteristically short with the man, telling him that if he does, if you pause and go say goodbye to your family, well, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. All of which leaves us wondering, what's this all about? <laughs> uh, we, we don't expect Jesus to be callous, right? That's not, that's not who we all know Jesus to be. Well, it seems to me that, that right after he has set his face for Jerusalem, knowing fully what's, what's ahead of him at the start of this long journey to the cross, I think that what Jesus is doing is making a point in this story, and it's one that he obviously believes is important enough that he needs to get our attention in a shocking way that, that God must be our first priority, that uh, the gospel has to come first in our lives, that the urgency of partnering with God in the building of the kingdom has to be more important to us than anything else. Now, as a Methodist, I read this text in light of the rest of Scripture, the rest of the witness about Christ, illumined by tradition and tested by reason and confirmed by my own experience of Jesus and our collective experience 
of Jesus, it's hard for me to imagine that Jesus would literally condemn a disciple who has to bury a parent or who wants to say goodbye to his family before joining him on the way. I don't think he literally means that. But he sure does get his point across in our passage for today. The theological truth that God really must come first for God's people. And you know, as we wrap up this series on unsettling passages of Scripture, I actually think that the, the metaphor of the spiritual journey is, is fitting for our relationship with the Bible. We've spent a fair amount of time in the past month in our heads talking about how to interpret and make sense of this sacred collection of inspired texts. But to me, uh, it seems that the most important thing we can do is to take the journey that it invites us on. Even, even when we come across those unsettling texts, we have to stick with it. Now, there will be ups and downs, for sure. <laughs> there will be mountaintop experiences and difficult valleys, sometimes valleys that lie in the shadow of death. Sometimes the way will be easy, while sometimes the storms will rage, and we are almost guaranteed to get lost from time to time. But friends, I've read this thing cover to cover more than once now. Some parts I've read more times than I could count. And I promise you, <laughs> much more importantly, we all can know with the certainty of our faith that if we make this book the most important book in our lives, we will be blessed beyond measure. May we all be up for that journey and go on it with Jesus.